0: Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul. So glad you were here, whether in person or online. would invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You know, growing up in, in Tennessee, I watched Florida State games from a distance. And so I can still remember watching FSU games in the 80s, the early 90s. I was always impressed. Chief Osceola Renegade and the flaming spear, despite myself, I thought that was the coolest thing, right? And when the gauntlet was thrown down, you knew that it was time to play. I also remember the classless Miami fans who are in players who tried to taunt and intimidate the horse. You guys remember that? And may the fleas of a thousand camels infest their armpits. But what we have here in First Timothy is the Apostle Paul throwing down the gauntlet, the flaming spear, so to speak. And his thing that's burning in his heart is the issue of the church. And as we introduced this series last week, we were reminded, weren't we, that the Word of God doesn't just speak to us in private, personal matters. Like, what kind of marriage are we going to have? Or what kind of parent are we going to be? Or uh, what are we going to believe uh, about Jesus in terms of personal salvation? Obviously, it does speak to all that, but it also speaks to us in much more corporate, public matters as it relates to the family of God. and And we were reminded because Paul is writing as an apostle that we don't get to pick and choose the parameters of what it means to be engaged and involved with His bride for ourselves. So often as as Americans, we we sort of have this idea that, that we decide the terms and the parameters of our worship. We decide the terms and parameters of our giving. We decide the terms and parameters of our service and worship and on and on and on. And Paul reminds us that it's God through his word making a claim upon us as believers. That's the overarching reality. And we're going to see in these first few verses this morning, um, lesson number one when it relates to the church, the people of God. Paul is going to remind us right off the bat, his very first words almost right after his greeting, what we are and are not to be about as the people of God. What is to be our priority And that's where we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 7. I'm going to invite you to stand, if you can, to join us in the reading of God's Word. There's a lot in these five short verses. Listen to the Word of God. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let me pray for us. Lord, I I believe that this is a timely word for our day and our age. Lord, we are inundated. We are consumed with information all around us. And so, Father, we pray that you would show us through your word this morning what our priority should be as the people of God, what our stewardship is, what we are called to be zealous for. And Lord, give us your grace to receive it. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may take your seat. The title of this sermon is Stewardship is Greater Than Speculation, and just for you math majors... We just gave the little less than or equal sign thing, right? Stewardship greater than speculation. Let's talk about speculation first because those are going to be our two points. Look at verse 3 for a minute. Paul tells Timothy he wants him to remain in Ephesus for his next pastoral assignment. Now, when we read the book of Acts and Paul's letters, we realize this is not Timothy's first rodeo. Timothy has had previous pastoral assignments. For example, we read in 1 Thessalonians that Paul sends Timothy to the church in Thessalonica and that his chief mission is to be an encourager. The, the church there was going through all sorts of suffering. They were faithful, but they were, they were scared. They were frightened. And Timothy's primary in, uh, mission at that point was encouragement. The mission this time for Oaks is entirely different. Paul says right up front, Timothy, I charge you to command certain men to stop teaching different doctrines. Now that word for command, it's one it's that denotes authority. It's used 32 times in the New Testament and guess what? 5 times in 1 Timothy. In other words, what Paul what has Paul's attention and his heart is serious. It is urgent. Um, It requires an extra measure of spiritual authority. And you can imagine Timothy reading this and the air sort of going out of his balloon, right? Paul is sending him right into the teeth of the lion. It's kind of like being a Tennessee fan these days when we hired our fifth coach in the last 10 years with such high expectations, and then the air is sort of let out this week, right? That's Timothy. Now, who were these other people? What was this different doctrine that they were teaching? Gordon Fee, in his commentary, makes a very compelling case now, th- this is really important, that these certain persons were actually elders in the church. And one of the reasons, and two reasons he makes this compelling case. Number one, they were obviously already active in teaching. And Paul makes it very clear in the pastoral epistles that teaching is the elder's responsibility par excellence. If the elder is to be nothing about nothing else, he is absolutely to be about teaching and shepherding God's people. So these people, these men were clearly public teachers in the church. Secondly, we're going to find out in coming weeks that Paul actually names these two men. He calls them out, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Alexander's a fine name, but parents, stay away from Hymenaeus, all right? That just has all sorts of baggage connected to it here. In other words, Paul takes the extraordinary measure of excommunicating these men himself. Now, remember in, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul exhorts the church to to expel the immoral brother. But here, because these men are elders, they are the spiritual authorities, he uses his apostolic authority to excommunicate them. This is all incredibly sobering because Paul had indeed prophesied not five years before to the Ephesian elders themselves on the shores of Miletus, As he's heading off to Jerusalem, when he told them this in Acts 20, he says, Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. It wasn't enough for Paul to say, Some people in the church. He looked out over them and said, Elders, you've been charged with the spiritual care and shepherding of God's people, but even some of you will rise up and distort the truth. And this is what was happening. See, these men were not content with just being faithful elders, faithful shepherds, faithful stewards. They were desiring to be, and look down here at, at verse 7, it says teachers of the law. And there's a specific kind of official meaning there where, where it denotes this idea that these men sort of in the rabbinical tradition of the Jews sort of aspired and saw themselves as the Christian version of the Jewish rabbi. And all that that entails, they wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be singled out as important, as smart, as esteemed. They were, in fact, the Christian version of the Pharisees. And what they were doing, Paul says, is teaching different doctrines. And the word literally for different, false Paul goes on to to describe these different doctrines as myths, as genealogies. And while it's impossible for us to know exactly what's happening, we can pretty well surmise just from the extra-biblical literature that circulating at this time during the intertestamental period, and that's the time between the Old and the New Testament. So remember, the Jews had been carried off to captivity in Babylon And then when they had come back to Palestine to reclaim their land, there was 400 years of silence. And during these 400 years of silence arose a whole cottage industry, so to speak, of of what we would call extra-biblical literature that kind of took the Old Testament. Have you ever read, read one of those historical narratives, right? They kind of take true events and then kind of build these stories around them that may or may not be true. We don't know. But this was like the fashion of the age. And so, so Jews would look at these m- myths and these genealogies and they would speculate about their past and they would speculate about um, the events that surrounded these, these, these genealogies in these stories. They, and they developed a whole history and backstory to them and put great stock in them. They, 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 they weren't merely hobbies, right? They were, they were devoted to these things in fact, that word devoted, it, re- it literally means to hold the mind or fixate. Do you ever have a, something that you just can't, like is in your head, a thought over and over, or is this just for us OCD people, right? Something you can't stop thinking about. Now for you movie buffs, think Inception. There you go right there. In fact, I had a friend in another city, they had to go to a therapist because they had a song stuck in their head. I didn't ask which song. I knew it would get stuck in my head as well, right? Maybe it was something from the Beatles. I don't know. But, but this idea that they weren't, this wasn't just kind of a passing fancy. These people were into this. They were devoted. Their minds were fixed on it. And, and their attitude seemed to be, you know, there's, there's certain simple truths about the Bible. And, and, and that's fine. But if you were super spiritual. If you are super discerning, if you want to go super deep, you need to study these things as well. And here is why, Four Oaks, this was so dangerous. This was not a frontal assault on the gospel. This, the, the, these, all of this speculation, which is what it was, speculative theology, did not contradict the Bible directly. It was much more subtle than that. There was just this pressure for people to gravitate to other authorities, other truth sources with this sort of misguided belief that there's so much more out there that I need to know to be spiritual, to be really discerning. In other words, they, there, are, there are Christians, but then there are discerning Christians, right? Who know the deeper things of God, who, who have the lay of the land, so to speak. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says this, and it is is such a great word. These errant elders weren't Judaizers like those in Galatia, who taught salvation by obedience to the law. It was not so much that they set out to be heretical, they simply wanted to go deeper into the Scriptures They wanted to go beyond the simple exegesis of Paul. And by giving people and events allegorical meaning, simple stories would reveal fantastic truths. They did not set out to abandon the gospel doctrine that salvation is by faith alone. But in fact, their progressive, and I love this word, accretions smothered the gospel. In in other words, Bible code stuff, right? Right? You know, you know, if, if you just read the scriptures in this certain way, whether it's old or new, then the truth behind the truths will reveal yourself. You'll be prepared. You'll really know. This is kind of the, the, the ethos that was permeating there. Now, folks, let me just say, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're coming to this passage at a time when the evangelical church at large, where the gospel— is not under constant threat of being denied, but it's under constant threat of being smothered, neglected, obscured, sort of gently set aside for the sake of being immersed in the latest whatever conspiracy theory is going on. I don't just, and I, sadly, I don't say even among Christians. Sadly, I say I think, particularly among Christians. Now, whether it's, and don't look up any of these things because it'll get sucked, you'll get sucked down the rabbit hole, okay? So let me just give you some examples, whether it's QAnon, Bill Gates, microchips and vaccines, child abuse rings, Pizzagate, One World Government, satanic councils. Guys, I had a Christian friend who would not go visit his family in another state because he was absolutely, positively, 100% convinced that Inauguration Day, there was going to be martial law and a coup and overthrow of the government, and so he would not travel. It was very boring for him that day, okay? Now, let me just say this. I understand that even in this room, there might be disagreements about what is and is not a genuine conspiracy. Some of you might be like, see, Pastor Paul, you're, you're a denier, right? Yet, let me just say this, what all of these things have in common by definition, hear me, is that they are speculative. They're incredibly difficult to prove if they are true or not true. They require experts. They require authorities outside the Bible. And you know what I want to say to all that? And I think what Paul would say, doesn't matter if it's true or not true. See, I love it that Paul doesn't even try to engage their arguments. He doesn't even say, well, you know, really the way those genealogies came about was this, and this is the way they're supposed to function in the life of God. He doesn't even say that. He doesn't even counter in terms of the content of their speculations and theories. And the question is why? And Paul's very clear. Just because they're vain. They're, They're senseless babble. In other words, I think what Paul will tell us, those things are not what's most important. Those things, Paul is going to tell us, are irrelevant to our mission. Now understand, church, this is not an apologetic to be naive to what's happening in the world. What we're talking about is what are we to be busy about? What is to be our priority as the people of God? See, when we become obsessed, when we become preoccupied, just for example, with let's just one thing, end-time speculation. See, this idea, guys, of one-world conspiracies, cosmic upheaval, that is not a new theory, right? If you live through the 70s, you live through it then. But it's actually been the case for the last 500 years. Remember, the Reformers thought that the Antichrist was the Pope, right? And Jesus needed to come right then. And one of the things that seems to be very clear over the history of the church, right, is this is not what we are to be about, being consumed with this sort of speculation. Now understand something. You've heard this expression. A broken clock is right at least twice a day, right? And so, of course, at some point the world will end. At some point Jesus will return. But we need to take a lesson from the apostles and Jesus, when they gathered around Jesus, Jesus was getting ready to go back to heaven. And they said, now, Jesus, is this the time that you're going to set up the kingdom? Is this the time? And what does Jesus tell them? He said, it's not for you to know the day or the hour. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, and we don't understand, this is a myster- this is mystery how, how this is true. Jesus says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Of course, you're not going to know where when I'm coming back. Jesus in his humanity said, this has been entrusted to the Father. But what's most important is what he says next. He says, don't worry about the time and the seasons. Here's, here's what I want you to do. Get to work. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. If you want to invest your time and your energy and your resources, then that's that. Go, Go to it. Because I will come back one day. And the most important thing that's going to happen on that day is, did you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you turn to him for faith and salvation? And the more time I think Paul is getting at here that we spend on speculation, the less time to spend on the core of our mission, which is our stewardship, which is our second point. Let's go back to the text. Paul uses two interesting words here. For where these teachers were leading people in the church, and he, two interesting terms: first is swerve, and the second is wondered. and they those, those literally means to deviate, or to sort of run your cart over into the ditch. I know some of you have have these features, safety features on your cars, where it'll start stop, it'll start beeping when you sort of you know, slide over the center line, right? Or roll into the shoulder. And let's be honest, those things are incredibly annoying, right? Danger, danger, danger. And you're just like, where's the button to turn this off? But as annoying as those things are, you know what? They are highly effective. They are highly effective because see, when you're driving and you're just sort of an autopilot, you, it is so easy just to deviate just a few degrees, And, and of course, if you glance at your phone once or twice, then the next thing you know, right, you're in some real danger. And so this is what was happening. It wasn't like these false teachers were taking a 180 and heading the opposite direction. It was very clear, whoa, 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 we're in the wrong direction. It was just these slight course alterations away from the truth. And this truth, and look down in verse 10, we're going to look at this next week. Paul calls sound doctrine, or apostolic deposit truth. In other words, the word of God once for all delivered to the saints. So, so in this context, that's the Old Testament, which Paul himself is, said is breathed out by God. This is the words of Jesus as captured in the gospels. And this is the instruction that the apostles give to the church that's captured in what we have now as our New Testament. And what Paul says is that this word, this truth, this apostolic deposit, that's what you need to be an expert on. That's what you need to devote yourself to. That's what you need to eat, breathe, and sleep. This stewardship, and by that we come to this term, the administration of a household or a state has, now listen, has been entrusted not just to the corporate church, not just to the leaders of the church, although that's true. It's also been entrusted to you and me. See, I think Paul has as the backdrop here, remember he traveled with Mark and Luke. He most certainly was very familiar with their gospels. And I can't help but think he has the parable of the money manager and the talents and the servants, right? That the master goes away and he entrusts a certain amount of talents to each steward. And their job is to be faithful with it. Their job is to multiply it. It's not about how much they've been given. It's about what they do with what they've received. And remember that talent possessed by the one servant who buried it in the ground. See, I think there's no better description of what happens when we are caught up and consumed in zealous For something more than the Word of God. The gospel just gets obscured. See, when we become devoted to things outside of Scripture, Paul says the inevitable result is always division, it is always speculation, it is always disruption to the body. And this is why Paul makes it very clear why he's writing this warning. Look at verse 5. He says, The aim or the goal of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I want you to notice, for Oaks, what it doesn't say is the ultimate goal. Paul does not say the ultimate goal is sound doctrine. Although sound doctrine is vital and foundational. Rather, sound doctrine, faithfulness to the Scriptures, is the means to something greater. And what is that thing? Well, Paul says it's called love. See, when a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith come together, Paul says that's love. Remember in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says there are these three things, faith, hope, and love, and which is the greatest church? Love. Now, why does Paul say that? It's because love is at the heart of the Christian gospel. See, love encompasses the the, the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is Paul's way of saying love is the totality of genuine faith and Paul has this little test here for genuine faith this is called the test of love and it's it speaks to all of us and here it is what is animating you this season what are you devoted to what are you zealous about church if if that is the word of God then 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 peace then love and then unity will bind your heart to other believers. But if you are zealous for something else, rest assured there will be unrest, there will be dissension, there will be upset, disunity, speculation. And by the way, I'm not talking about not being firm with the truth. I'm not talking about not taking a stand on orthodox belief and the clear teachings of Scripture. Those things will and can cause division. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things that go outside of Scripture and make make us speculate and make us wonder and make us be suspicious and consume our hearts and our minds and our attention. See, we, we, can, we can be so zealous about things that we have just kind of this evangelistic fervor in trying to convert others, to educate others to our points of view, right? Eat this, read this, listen to this, watch this, because if you do, then you'll really know. Th- then you'll really have the key. Then you're going to really be discerning, then you're really going to be able to get to the reality behind what's happening out there. Let me ask you a question, church. Are we better or worse off as a Christian community over this past year and our witness because of this speculative season? I think all of us intuitively know the answer to that. See, speculation division, Paul calls vain Discussions. And it's precisely, I think, what Paul is speaking to. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Here, here's, here's kind of an application point that I think will be helpful for you. It's helpful for me in our personal lives. One of the ways that we can sort of curb our enthusiasm, so to speak, to sort of slow our role in order to redirect our attention back to the things of the God, uh, things of God and my friend Josh uses, uses this phrase, and I think it's so good is we have to become careful curators of our souls." And, and let me explain what we mean by that. I have an older cousin who lives in the Midwest, and he is an art major. He's a professor at a university in the Midwest. And back in the 70s, when he was still a teen, he traveled Europe with, with his younger sister, my cousin, in the 70s as a teenager, and he saw all the major pieces and works of art in person, right? He was an expert from an early age. And so in his elder years now as he's teaching, he, his previously served as a curator at a very, very well-known art museum in the Midwest. And what does a curator do? Well, a curator in a museum has to decide what are we going to display and what are we not? What are we going to highlight and what are we not? And so if you want to have kind of a, a dark theme, you go medieval. If you want to have kind of this romantic theme, you go impressionist. You, if you want to have this majestic thing, you go Baroque. I mean, on and on and on. That's about limits my knowledge okay of of art let me just be honest with you but but all of this is from a curator standpoint is meant to shape okay sort of the social imagination of the audience you want them to come in and receive something and experience something and walk in something how are you doing church in the curation of your soul what is it that you are absorbing? What is it that you're reading, listening to, meditating on, thinking about? You see, if, if we're going to be faithful stewards, what Paul talks about here in verse 5, if we're going to stay on mission, if we're going to offer hope to a dying world, if we're going to be witnesses to our neighbors, if we're going to give gospel hope to our children... And gospel hope to our grandchildren, they've got to have something more. See, we're, you can tell what we've been, kind of curator we've been for our souls when we just look at our lives, what comes out. See, what goes in is going to come out. You can always tell what's animating someone by what they're ingesting and watching, viewing, clicking on, reading. But church, there is a call for us for every era and age of the church. And it's the one David writes about in Psalm 119 when he says this. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Because I, I've got to be honest, this, is, this sermon is directed right at my own heart. I don't know about how many of, of you do this, but... I typically go to bed with my phone right on the table next to me. Of course I have to do that, right? I've got to set the alarm, of course. Of course, what did we do before <laughs> alarms on phones? So what, imagine, what, imagine this. What do you think is the last thing I do before I go to sleep every night? Just doom scrolling, right? Just getting depressed, getting angry, getting fearful, you know, getting anxious, I'm at that age where I'm getting up in the middle of the night to pray, right? Okay, to pray. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing in the middle of the night? Doom scrolling again. The first thing in the morning, you get the idea, right? Many of you probably struggle with the same thing. No wonder I'm anxious and fearful and angry and agitated and suspicious and speculative, right? Right? Because I have not been a good curator for my heart and for my soul. How are you doing in the curation of your soul? There's something Paul says about being a a good steward and stewarding the truth of God's word where it's what we meditate upon day and night. Whether it's your Bible reading plan, whether it's a classic like Knowing God by Packer or a, a contemporary Work like Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland or a thousand other titles. You can go out into the lobby on the bookshelf and dust off some of those books by the fireplace, right? There's, there's, there's so much out there. Pastor Paul, that just seems so ordinary. There's no, there's no good conspiracy there. There's no good like gotcha and secret agenda. And God wants to remind us that the things that he has made known to us is what we need to live a faithful life, a life that is honoring and glorifying to him. I think if Paul was here today, he would say, church, speculation is not good news. There's no good news in uncertainty. But here's the one thing you can be certain about, Jesus and the gospel, that he has laid down his life for you, and that he has entrusted this deposit of truth, his holy scriptures, so that we might be stewards and zealous for every good work. And may God, by his grace, do that work in us this season. Let's pray.